from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. One of the most popular episodes of Psychoactive to date has been the one where I invited my friend Julie Holland to serve as my co-host and answer questions with me from you, the audience. So we're going to record another one of those episodes, and we need your questions. Leave us a voicemail with a question, as detailed as possible, at 1-833-779-2460, or you can record a voice memo and send it to psychoactive at protozoa.com. I'm sure it's going to be a great second go at this. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. Today's guest is somebody who's actually pretty famous, not just in a small world, but becoming increasingly so. His name is Paul Stamets. 
And he is really the guru, the, the maestro of mushrooms, and not just psilocybin psychedelic mushrooms, but mushrooms writ large. I, I mean, he's an author. He's written a lot of books about growing mushrooms, about how mushrooms can help save the world. He's a researcher. He's an inventor. He holds a, a lot of patents and has a lot more, you know, currently under consideration. Michael Pollan, in his book, uh, Changing Your Mind, you know, compares Paul to some of the great amateur naturalists like Darwin. And he's somebody that I've known a little bit over the years. So, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Psychoactive with me. Well, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, brother. Yeah, well, listen, I remember the first times you and I crossed paths must have been late 90s, early 2000s. And it was at that annual mushroom conference in Telluride. And I just remember blowing, being blown away because you gave these three speeches one on mushrooms and the environment, one on mushrooms and medicine, and one on mushrooms and the mind. And each one was more extraordinary than the other. But let me back up here and just ask the first question, how did it come about? How did you and mushrooms get married in this way, obviously, many, many decades ago? What's the story? When my older brother John, he was the eldest brother, and he uh, went to Yale, and uh, during one of his vacations, he went down to Mexico and Colombia and collected Psilocybe cubensis, which is the most common and popular, even today, psilocybin mushroom, growing on cow patties in the subtropics, circumpolar all over the world in the subtropics, by the way. And he came back with these amazing stories of tripping on psilocybin. And I was just 14 years of age or so. And I was fascinated because I adored my older brother. And he had these crazy adventures, also very secretly told to me out of the earshot or ear range of my parents. And it was just such an exciting you know, adventure stories he had. And little did I know how powerful that these mushrooms would really become in my life. Now mushrooms have become the zeitgeist of our time. It's a sort yeah. of a worldwide revolution coming up from the underground, and it's unifying across cultures and continents. Yeah. Paul, I'm curious. You know, I remember reading that, that you had grown up in a sort of traditional Christian or maybe evangelical background. I mean, was that something you rebelled against before you even got into this mushroom thing? Or were the ways in which you were influenced by that in ways you think may have shaped your thinking, either reactively or synergistically? Well, thank you for that question. No one's really asked me that in the same way. I was actually kind of turned on with the aspect of altered states of consciousness. And so when I see these charismatic Christians go into these trances and speaking in tongues and doing this, frankly, weird-ass stuff, I, I took it from more of an academic point of view. I thought, well, this is they're actually altering their consciousness, just like with psilocybin, but that sort of flight uh, into an altered states of consciousness was really interesting to me. You're just a year or two older than me, but I think we also both kind of came of age, you know, hit our 20s in the in the mid to late 70s, which was, a, you know, a kind of brief period of live and let live um, between the kind of Nixon versus political ra radicalism of the 60s and early 70s and then the Reagan generation. And, you know, in prepping for this interview, I read some things that I didn't know, which is, you know, when you go to Evergreen State College, as a, you know, and, and that you start organizing these conferences about mushrooms and such. And inviting 
this remarkable group of people. I mean, you're only, what, 20 around that time, right? And you're bringing in a kind of who's who of some of the leading figures, what, in both mycology and psychedelics? Yeah, it was, a, like I mentioned, I was a logger hippie for about three years, and then three guys in my crew got killed, and I decided to go back to college or go to college. I went to Kenyon College for a year, and then I took off into the woods for a period of time. And But I was writing my first book, um, Philosophy of Mushrooms and Our Allies. I started it when I was 18, 19 years of age, and I spent a huge amount of time at the University of Washington Library in the basement, the science library, looking up uh, the the works of uh, Schultes and, and Wasson and other great, you know, uh, researchers, most of the books, as you probably remember, were razored out. <laughs> you go to the library, you check out a book on psych- it had a chapter on psychedelics, the whole chapter has been razored out. When I was doing my research, you know, coming down to the University of Washington, there are numerous species in the Northwest that have been reported uh, growing naturally in the fields like Liberty Caps, Philosophy Semilanciata, and and wood chips, Philosophy cyanescens, Beocystis cyanofibulosa. These are all species names of mushrooms that grow on wood chips. And so I started, then I joined a taxonomic group that, which is called the Pacific Northwest Key Council, which we wrote taxonomic keys, binary decision trees on identifying species by characteristics, whether they have, you know, brown spores or white spores, et cetera, et cetera. You go down the decision tree. And so we, I wrote, I focused on this psilocybin mushroom family. Uh, it's called the Strophoria ACE. It's a family of hyphaloma or nematoloma, Strophoria, and psilocybe. These are satellite uh, uh, genera within the family. I say that because Strophoria cubensis, Earl, was first discovered in Cuba. It was called a Strophoria. And then it got moved over to the genus psilocybe, where it is now. So in the course of my research, realizing that these mushrooms grow, grew in the Pacific Northwest, but the mycologists there were largely unaware. Dr. Daniel Stentz from the University of Washington, a great mycologist, told me he rarely ever saw these until the hippies showed up. And the hippies basically is wood chips landscaping around buildings. And when the wood chip landscaping industry you know, was born out of the logging industry, they had all these chips and they use them for landscaping and mulching. Then these psilocybin mushrooms started showing up around campuses. <laughs> so appropriate that these young, eager minds would be walking the campus and having psilocybin mushrooms coming up by the thousands, <laughs> you know, right, right beside their walkway. So I think that really spurred, you know, and I think the argument can be made. It spurred the, the invention of the computer internet generation. You know, so many of the psychonauts of the 70s went on to give uh, create some of the biggest internet-based companies that we know all today. There's a great photograph of the founders of Microsoft. I, I encourage everyone to look it up. Bill Gates is only the straight-looking dude <laughs> in that photograph. Every one of them are long hairs, right? So, But you're almost describing, when you talk about these students showing up, I mean, it's almost like you're describing this relationship between mushrooms and humans, almost like the relationship between dogs and humans, right? That that there was something about, about you know, the, the way like, like dogs, I guess, have survived, they say, is because they developed this special relationship with humans in a way that many other wild creatures did not. And it sounds like there's an element of mushrooms. I mean, they were going to be there before, after, during us, no matter no matter us. No, but they, they yeah, very good point. They're, 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 their success for survival has been amplified 
but by by hitchhiking and engaging humans. Uh, it goes back to Michael Pollan's book, uh, one of his books, The Botany of Desire. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting. These psilocybin mushrooms, which massively expand consciousness, are co-occurring at a time critical in the evolution of humans as they're having a negative impact on the ecosystem that's given humans and other organisms health and birth. So I do think there is an element there of causality. And moreover, you know, you can say this is deterministic or coincidental. In the long run, it doesn't matter. The net effect is people who do psychedelics are more pro-environmental after the experience. They're less prone to violence. Uh, they have a better sense of community, of forgiveness. Psilocybin makes kinder, more responsible, more law-abiding people. And Paul, just to be clear, and just to simplify a lot of this for me and the audience, I mean, is there a clear distinction between the the psychoactive, the psilocybic mushrooms, and the non-psychoactive? Or is it kind of a line, a spectrum of psychoactivity? That's a really good and complicated question that I don't have a really straightforward answer, but I can give some partial answers. Every mushroom species is a unique pharmaceutical factory that has a composites of literally thousands, in some cases, hundreds of unique molecules not found elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Think of that. Each one of them is a pharmaceutical factory that has a whole slew of compounds, beneficial to human health, negative to human health. Some of the compounds that are negative to human health could be beneficial to ecological health. So, you know, we have a very myopic human-centric view of what is good and what is bad. There is also psilocybin analogs, which are totally legal, and that's what a big part of our research is on, is uh, they are called, um, the psilocybin analogs, there's norcilocin, norbeocystin, and baocystin. These are legal tryptamines that are also are being co-produced inside the natural form of psilocybin mushrooms that also have a thousand year plus history of use. They're fully legal, and so that's an area that we also have found extraordinary activity and increasing uh, neurogeneration. So, uh, Paul, you know, reading that chapter about you in Michael Pollan's book, and he describes you as an autodidact, and you can sort of feel this combination of his skepticism and then you overcoming his skepticism. And, you know, him describing you as this sort of great amateur naturalist in the tradition of Darwin or and others. Uh, in what ways do you think that has been more of an advantage or disadvantage for your during your journey? Well, this gets into deep psychology. <laughs> um, of course, it's a chip on my shoulder because my profession is mycology. I am a professional mycologist. My income is from mycology. I will have soon four papers published in Nature. It's the most prestigious, if not the one, or if not the most prestigious uh, journal, scientific journal uh, in the world. For people to describe me as an amateur, I mean... Do you have to have a PhD in order to be a professional? I, I think the nuance of language here begins to fall apart, and it's it's used oftentimes as weaponized to cut me down. Hey, I'm a warrior. <laughs> I can take it. Uh, but I have to really just challenge people. If my profession is mycology, I publish in professional scientific journals. What part of my work is 
not professional. When I wax poetic about the evolution of, of the computer internet and, and dark matter, sure, that's speculative. But it's amazing that people want to put you in a box to put you down rather than saying that these words don't really apply in the conventional sense that you're using them. So I imagine that plays less of a role now. I mean, if you had landed up getting a PhD along the way, it might have helped you get the message out there in your earlier years, but probably is irrelevant now. Listen, I'll, I'll tell you something. <laughs> I am so glad that I've been an outlier. I'm so glad I, I met with John Doerr and, and his financial group with Bill Gates, with Jeff Bezos. I was too friggin' weird for them. I was too out there. I am so glad. I am so glad I, I was not a person that they wanted to invest in because I was too far out there. As a result, I'm totally independent. I would tell anyone out there who are sensitive to criticism, thank your critics because it'll just make you stronger. Well, for young people, I mean, when, when young people wanted to get in this field, do you encourage them to get a PhD in, you know, the study of mycology? Or do you basically tell them it doesn't really make much of a difference one way or the other? Well, I mean, Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard, uh, you know, started started Microsoft. I mean, there's many, many examples of people who have done that. Hey, the academic institutions have resources, folks, the bottom line. So, yes, go to a university, go to a college, go to the academic institutions who have the resources to be able to, to help you. Now, in this days of Internet, and especially in this days of COVID, you know, we have the world encyclopedias at our fingertips. So if you're concerned about tenure and getting a job at a university and fitting into that box, then, yeah, the credentials are, are very helpful and indeed necessary because you'll be out-competed with somebody who's more credentialed than yourself if you aren't credentialed. But um, are these labels really necessary? I mean, if, if, if the labels are going to prevent you from your innovation, then I think you have another problem that should be addressed. But I would say follow the traditional path as far as it, you can make use of it for your own personal advancement and benefit. But strategically, at some point, you might want to chart your own course. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow, 
to a calm and relaxing place to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Paul, I see you at this pivotal intersection, right, between the broader field of mycology, which has a lot about mushrooms that has nothing to do with psychedelics, and then you're a fundamental figure in the broader psychedelics area because of psilocybin mushrooms. But are there many prominent figures in the study of mycology who either don't try or are just not interested in the psychoactive elements of mushrooms? That was the vast majority I remember going to my first North American Mycological Association for a 19, I think, 74, 75. I had long hair and a long beard, and I was treated like a leper. When I'd walk into a crowd, people would just walk and keep a distance from me because they didn't want to be associated with me because I was obviously interested in psilocybin mushrooms. Thankfully, Daniel Stuntz, the professor at the University of Washington, took me under his wing. And then I met Alexander Smith, who is thought to be the father of American mycology by many experts. And they both said, okay, this, this guy's got a sparkle in his eye. He's really, really interested in the subject. And so I, I captured their attention and got their support. Uh, so I'm very thankful for that. But, but the field of mycology, if you were associated with psilocybin mushrooms, you were excommunicated from not only the inner circle, but the medium circle. It's only on the outer periphery. But so this, I imagine, has evolved quite substantially. I mean, are there still in the field study of mycology significant figures who show no interest or hostility toward the psychoactive elements of their field? You know, I've had a big influence because of my TED Talk and, you know, the movie Fantastic Fungi. You know, I've been on, you know, I've been on stage a lot at medical conferences, as you know. Most of the time, these medical conferences, I've been talking about medicinal mushrooms, not psilocybin, but 
even at my TED talk is that, I don't know, 6 million views or something, they warned me not to talk about psilocybin mushrooms. So my really? talk, <laughs> six, six Ways Mushrooms Can Help Save the World, there's no mention of my subject that I really wanted to talk about. Right, right. I mean, although it does seem like the FDA is getting more open, for example, on the research on psilocybin mushrooms. So do you have patents going in that area? Because you know, a, lot, a lot of the criticism right on the patents in this area has been of, of companies seeking patents for things which is already common knowledge, as opposed to really making a major new contribution. Yeah, it, I have about 10 patents be uh, entering through the patent office. I discovered that if you had niacin, to psilocybin, it would enhance activity. Now, let, let's roll back the clock on this. And Ethan, you probably remember this. In the 70s, it was widely thought that if you had a bad dose of LSD or psilocybin, you take a high dose of niacin and you bring you down. In fact, I've recorded maybe 10 conferences where I asked people to raise their hand. The senior psychonauts knew about this. And you know, every conference, several dozen people raise their hand. Actually, I filmed this because contrary to conventional wisdom. Ironically, Johns Hopkins and many of these other clinical studies, they choose niacin as the active placebo. Because in about 12 to 20 minutes, you start getting hot flushes. So an active placebo means, well, the expectancy of the patient is they'll feel something. So this is as opposed to be a neutral placebo versus psilocybin, where you feel something in, in you know, 12 to 20 minutes, you have liftoff. So it fits that time parameter of an active placebo. Ironically, they got it exactly wrong. I proposed this and came up with it in 2015. I presented at the MAPS conference, where I think you spoke at in mm -hmm. San Francisco, 2016. And I propose that combining niacin, psilocybin mushrooms, and lion's mane would have a synergistic effect that is way beyond the compounded effect of the three components. Now, I added niacin as an adversive for microdosing. And the idea is if you got, you know, one gram of psilocybicubensis at 1% one, 1 is about 10 milligrams of psilocybin. So you have liftoff at about one gram. A tenth of a gram is subsensorium. That's a definition of a microdose. You cannot feel it. So the common microdosing protocols are about a tenth of a gram of psilocybicubensis. You feel no effect. And then I thought, well, if you're going to do microdosing over the counter and you had a bottle of 100 pills, wow, there's a lot of trips there. People would just take 10 capsules. Mm -hmm. So by adding niacin, it would be like an adversive, like, uh -huh. a, like ant abuse for, uh, for alcoholics. And because we take niacin, for those of you who haven't done it, go out and this is perfectly safe. Take 100 milligrams of niacin, nicotinic acid, the flushing form, by the way, and you'll start itching. You'll get red. You'll, you're, I start itching weirdly in the bottom of my feet and the back of my neck. And you get beet red. And it's very, very uh, unpleasant experience. You won't want to take that much again. So I, I thought, well, by adding niacin, it'd be an adversive that'll prevent abuse. And because it's a vasodilator, that's why it works. And I thought also it can excite the endpoints of the peripheral nervous system because that's where it happens when you start itching. Your endpoints of your nerves are excited and they're sensitive. So I thought vasodilation, adversive, exciting the endpoints of the peripheral nervous system, this could make the beneficial effects of psilocybin and lion's mane mushroom get to the endpoints of the peripheral nervous system because peripheral neuropathy oftentimes presents itself as a deadening of the fingertips and toes. So that was my whole idea. Mm -hmm. This is a novel idea, folks. There's no prior art on this. This, this is a true test of patentability and why 
it, it should be and, and it will be uh, awarded as a patent. I came up with a novel idea. I saw the mention of this, right, because you were just co-author of a paper in Nature, right, about microdosing. And I wonder if you could just explain, you know, what you found there, because I think it was the biggest study so far of microdosing, right? Yeah, I'm really, really proud of the, our team. You know, it's been a team effort. And we co-designed an app that's available on iOS, Apple devices, soon to be available on Droids. It's at microdose.me. Has gone through the, the ethics review boards at University of British Columbia. All your data is protected. It's anonymized. We found the cellular mechanism that we believe translates into the psychomotor demonstration that microdosing with a stack of niacin and lion's mane has a dramatic effect on neurological performance. I mean, this whole thing is like, it's a beautiful, beautiful discovery. I'm just so honored to be the shepherd of this, of this knowledge because I think it'll be a paradigm breakthrough in medicine. And other researchers can walk through this door and uh, just shows a combination of a natural product and mm -hmm. a pure, uh, in this case, we're using pure psilocin. We, we can legally get psilocin, one milligram, uh, without a DEA license. And so and psilocin is the other ingredient in psilocybin mushrooms? Uh, psilocybin and psilocin both co-occur in psilocybin mushrooms. Psilocybin is a prodrug to psilocin. Mm -hmm. It dephosphorylates. And psilocin crosses the blood-brain barrier, or psilocybin does not. But we got, for this first paper, we published on November 18th, we had uh, over 8,000 people. And what's amazing about this, Ethan, is that we recruited this group on microdose.me. So we had a really good balanced data set to compare. Now, this is open, open label, you know, people are getting psilocybin mushrooms illegally on the black market, variability in dose, variability in potency. So the key outcome, though, you found in this first paper was that microdosing looks to be associated with lower levels of anxiety and depression. Was that the key finding? That's the key finding. But a legitimate argument is that could be association. Mm -hmm. People who are, the, the motivations which we get into, why are people microdosing? They're microdosing to resolve their depression. They're, they're microdosing to be more creative, to be more present. That was an interesting uh, metric as well. So the motivations and the demographics was the first paper. It was not a cause and effect paper. So we never even said anything about that. Some people jumped to their conclusions that it was. But our second paper, we submitted the day after our first paper was accepted. That paper found something that's totally bizarrely interesting that is crazy in its implications. And basically it says microdosing is again associated because not a placebo double blind controlled study is associated with reduction in depression, significant reduction in depression and increase in psychomotor response. Okay, what is a psychomotor response? See, depression is subjective. And I like to say, and I think it's legit, if you're microdosing for depression and your best friends are microdosing for depression, and their friends are microdosing for depression, I'm microdosing, you're microdosing, we're all microdosing together. We're in a community. Expectancy, right? That, that comes into play. But what Dr. Pam and I focused in on is what is something that's not subjective? What is something that is outside of subjectivity that cannot be related to expectancy effect or if you want to use the word placebo? And as I mentioned, 46% of the individuals, the second paper is 12,000 people. And it turns out there's something called the TAP test. 
This is an alternating finger test. Many of you have had this or you know of your friends who are family who have Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, a traumatic brain injury. It's a, how quickly you can tap your fingers alternatingly in 10 seconds. But this is a validated test for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, cognitive decline. And note to self, we're all getting older. We all have cognitive decline. We all lose psychomotor skills. So in our second paper, as it turns out with a stack of those people reporting using the stack of lion's mane, niacin, and psilocybin microdosing on the average of three times a week, average of one-tenth or one-third of a gram of psilocybin, there is a massive increase in the TAP test over 30 days. The TAP test metrics go from about 43, approximately TAPs in 10 seconds, to 73 in 30 days. That's not subjective, folks. So we found massive increase in the TAP test in 30 days in the age group of over the age of 55. That's where we really saw the signal. It shows synergy and this is why I've hit the friggin' home run, folks. I, I could not be happier. There's also a lot of evidence of animals using and even getting high off of psilocybin mushrooms, right? Yeah, there's a, a lot of examples. Uh, the ingestion of mushrooms by animals, from insects to, to bears to people to dogs to cats to birds. I mean, yes, yeah, part of the food chain, folks. Um, and, uh, you know, there's 23 including humans, primates that are known to ingest mushrooms. And they know the differences between poisonous and edible ones. That speaks to a long ancestral knowledge of the fact that mushrooms are good as a nutrition or part of our food going back millions of years with so many different species documented ingesting mushrooms uh, as a food. And invariably, they would also encounter the psilocybin mushrooms and some of these psilocybin mushrooms, especially in the subtropics, in the tropics, are uncommonly common. All of which kind of leads us to the uh, stoned ape hypothesis of Terence McKenna, and I guess some of his predecessors that I think you've been a quasi-believer in, right? That uh, The role of psilocybin mushrooms in human evolution? You know, the, Terence and Dennis McKenna came up with this, and uh, I was on the other side of the fence making fun of them. I thought it was a great stoner conversation. But listen, with our cellular data that we have right now, we can see that psilocybin and psilocybin analogs that I just mentioned activate nerve growth receptors and code for the regeneration and the origination of new neurons. It's happening, folks. This is what the problem that I find so curious about this orthodox scientific community. They stand on their high chair and they throw spears, but they are not forgiving for those who are visionaries who speculate and that imagination and speculation has led to the greatest innovations in the history of science. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Well, I remember a few years ago, I read this wonderful novel by Richard Powers, well, the overstory that won the Pulitzer Prize. And it was about basically almost looking at the world through the eyes of trees in a way. And, you know, I mean, and, and it talked about these elements of, of the networks and communications and almost community, if not familial existence among trees. And obviously, mycelia, mushrooms, fungi play this big role in this. And then I've heard you make these analogies between the plant life and the fungi life and the networks and the communication. And also when we think about the network of the internet and other types of neural networks. And I wonder if you could just you know, expand on that. Is, are there sense in which the future, you know, the metaverse and things are learning anything from studying the fungi? I mean, you talk about some of the Silicon Valley innovators and entrepreneurs and pioneers, but is there some interplay between these worlds? Well, there are a few universal truths in nature. I think one of them is networks are self-perpetuating. Uh, they're agile, responding to ever-changing circumstances. You know, at the tips of the mycelium, and uh, we actually checked this mathematically because I said this in the movie Fantastic Fungi that 
the breadth of my arms outstretched could have trillions of cross branchings and end tips. You know, they're multinucleate at the tips. There's, there's multi, many nuclei and they're, they're testing and coding and they're responding. And if there's a new a genomic expression from epigenesis, the stimulus of an environmental stimulus on the genome of the organism, and it codes for a new protein that allows it to have more food or more protection or more survival advantage, what happens? Those genes then get replicated. And moreover, the network becomes informed of this success. And so there's a memory then going forward. And so these networks not only vaccinate themselves, but they're massive repositories of knowledge. So networks, I think, by their very structure, are evolutionarily successful. And the invention of the computer internet, I think, is a repetition of a previously proven evolutionary successful model. We see it with mycelium. We see it with neurons. And I'm an amateur astronomer, so I, I see it in organization of dark matter. You know, I think these are echoes on different orders of magnitude of the same structure. So I'm, I just think I wax poetic in my thinking, because when you trip on psilocybin mushrooms, as you well know, you have this feeling of being in the context of some giant consciousness. You're, you're no longer just a corporeal envelope of a, inside of a human shell. You're part of this giant expanse of universal being, of, of existence. And I think this has increasing scientific credibility. I think nature is conscious. I think everything in nature is conscious. We are not as conscious as the consciousness that surrounds us. And I, I think this is what these psychedelics do. They open up your imagination to think boldly. And I, I will say brilliantly in many cases. And also people can go out way out there. I'm not saying that they can't, but. Uh, you know, you like Andy Weil and some others, you know, intersect with the broader issues of health and wellness. And in this case, mushrooms and medicine. But there's a way in which you're also a key figure in the intersection with the environment. And I mean, so let me just ask you about bees and mushrooms. So just elaborate. We are Neanderthals with nuclear weapons is how I look at this. See, because I was a beekeeper and a mushroom grower, I was at the Venn intersection of those two scientific disciplines. There's a tr tremendous die-off of uh, bees around the world right now. And so I use mycelium to upregulate the immune system of bees. We publish in Nature. I'm the primary author in Nature Scientific Reports. Ethan, you'll love this. It's in the 99.9th percentile of all articles ever published in the nature publication ecosystem, including nature medicine. And only about 7% of the articles get accepted that are submitted to nature, and I'm in the top 0.1%. So the basically, in nature, in our article, one treatment with a reishi mushroom mycelium extract is the mycelium, folks, reduce viruses that harm bees by 45,000 times with one treatment in their sugar water at a 1% concentration. That's, that's one drop per 100 drops of sugar water. Sugar water is 50-50. So phenomenal. So it was stated to me by the Cornell University, Jay Evans, who's also a co-author on our paper, in 10 years, he's not seen a virus-free bee. The varroa mite has spread these viruses now, and they've, it's called a worldwide pandemic. And world bee pollination services are in jeopardy. So this is something I think is a paradigm solution We've been working with the FDA and the USDA for two years because we are not allowed to commercialize this. 
Now think of this, folks. You got a solution that could save biodiversity, but government regulations prevent you because bees, honeybees are considered to be minor livestock. And because they're minor livestock, the food that they are allowed to consume and they're allowed to buy for your commercial bees is regulated by the government. You can feed your family and your children more foods than you're allowed to feed to livestock. So we've been trying now for a year and a half, going on two years to get an exemption and a pathway forward with the FDA. But after then continuous dialogue back and forth, they begin to soften up and uh, they really see you're well intended. You've got something that could be a benefit. So, so the FDA actually has given us a roadmap now for approval. And then we hope to be able to have this made available. Now, again, patents are blueprints. Anyone who's a mushroom cultivator and knows how to do in vitro propagation like I do, you can take my patent. You can grow up your own mycelium. You can do an extract. You can feed your own bees. It's just you cannot commercialize it. I Googled you with Google News just before this conversation here. And when you put Paul Stamets in there, what pops up more often than you, Paul Stamets, is the character in the Star Trek TV show that's named after you, right? An astromycologist named Paul Stamets. But then I see you have this relationship with NASA and you have these, I think, a grant or something that's looking at asteroids and, and mushrooms. I mean, what's that about? <laughs> I live in this remote island right now, you know, quarantine safe in the can, British Columbia, and I built my house in the shape of Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> so they called me up and I'm going, you know, I'm sitting on the star deck of my cabin that was built as a tribute to Star Trek Enterprise. And you're calling me up, you know, to ask about this. We're supposed to write the next Star Trek series. We're searching for ideas. We saw your TED talk. Do you have any ideas? And I said, oh my God. I said, turn on your tape recorder. And that, and then we spent two hours, hour and a half to two hours. But I said, at the end, I've always wanted to be the first astromycologist. They said, what? What would you say? I said, astromycologist. And they go, we can use that. We can use that. <laughs> What's the thing with NASA, though? I mean, there's some, uh, some grant proposal or a bad thing about asteroids and mushrooms? Yeah, it's a small grant. It's only $85,000. It's basically a proof of concept. Can we take a regolith, which is basically lunar or asteroid mineral dust, and can we then turn it into soil to grow plants for human habitation? With this NASA grant, we have a what's called a white paper that we produced. And uh, two of my colleagues you know, get credit for doing the heavy lifting on this. We designed the experiments together. And then we found, uh, sure enough, it looks like it's a great gateway. The implications of which means that once human beings are living on other planets or other extraterrestrial spaces, that they will be able to create their own food on these things by using these fungi? Fungi basically munch rocks. Uh, fungi eat rocks, liberate minerals, associate with algae, lichens form, mycorrhizal fungi pair with plants. So. Uh, they they break down minerals and they send it to plants and the plants reward uh, the mycelium um, with with nutrients. It's much easier to send seeds and spores 
to, to Mars than it is to carry, you know, two years of food or mm -hmm. five years or 10 years of food. So yeah, you want to become sustainable. Mm -hmm. Remember, you used to always run into the phrase, hemp will save the world, right? And there's an element, you know, where you're out there saying mushrooms, you know, mycelium will save the world or help save the world. I think it's true. I actually think it's true. The, the evidence that we have now, it's just so vast and so deep that these mycelial networks are the the dominant interface organisms that are existing. You know, fungi create soils, folks. Without soil, you don't have life. So they are instrumental in, their, in the production of soil. Can this sort of thing be scaled up in a way which can address some of the major challenges of climate change? Well, let me put it this way. I can take a piece of a tissue, one-tenth the size of your fingernail from a mushroom, let's say an oyster mushroom, and four to six months grow 10 million pounds of mushrooms. That is literally true. So when you look at the scalability of the fermentation in vitro technology, the ability of you being able to generate enough mycelium to replace leather, to replace meat, to be able to help ecosystems break down toxins, to be able to grow enough psilocybin mushrooms to expand consciousness, and I think psilocybin it will lead to humans becoming a new species. We are not the, the homo sapiens of the past several hundred thousand years. We better not be. It's time for us to evolve and have a quantum leap in the evolution of a human species. I think psilocybin mushrooms and the use of mycelium and all these applications that I've alluded to is a paradigm-shifting mycotechnology that can literally save billions of lives. And ironically, it is just now being discovered the conventional anti-mycology mindset is being deselected <laughs> out of the gene pool. Of course, there'll be a lot of starts and stops, but there's a dozen companies now. I mean, Mercedes just announced they have mycelium leather and their new concept vehicles. Um, there's many big alternative meat companies that have soared in their IPOs um, and gathering a, a lot of investment money. Many of these companies will fail, a few will succeed, but that's the cost of entrepreneurialism, mm -hmm. to dare to be different. And as you know, I have been talking about this for 40 years, and as a lone voice in the woods, dare to be imaginative. And is there a comparable fascination with this stuff in China, as there is in the West? Yeah, China is very interesting. The the long history of use of mushrooms in China as a immune tonic is fantastic. It's extremely well established. The innovation that we're seeing now, in a sense, may have had its mycelial roots in China, but by no means does one culture now dominate uh, the field of mycology. It is a worldwide movement. It's a pluralistic movement, and I think that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Paul, I almost forgot to ask you a question I asked many of the guests. So are you still consuming psilocybin with some frequency? Uh, do you experiment among the different varieties, peyote, mescaline, ayahuasca, DMT? I mean, is this still a part of your life in a significant way, or is it more a part of your younger years? I'm 66 years of age. I was born in 1955, and I will never be an apologist for my use of psilocybin mushrooms. They're core to my being and who I am. I, I journey, as I say, or trip at least once a year with a very large dose. I do it in a very protected set and setting. It's very much core of, of who I am and my being. And um, I think it's showing medically supported evidence now 
that one of these events can be life-changing, infrequently used, but long-term benefits that put it outside the realm of the war against drug uh, narrative that was propaganda in the past. So absolutely believe in the benefits of these set and setting, you know, having the right person with you. Journeying by yourself is not advisable. Having a sitter, a doctor, a therapist, a therapeutic setting, of course, this is much better. But for the people coming into this scene, novo, you know, new, I'm very concerned of them shopping around and trying to find a would-be leader or a guide, and then unfortunately making a bad decision. That's a, dis- that's a discussion for another time, perhaps. Yeah. And is there a part of you that feels a loyalty or allegiance to psilocybin relative to mescaline or DMT or LSD or other substances? Well, LSD is 12 hours. Psilocybin is four to four to six hours. That's one of the reasons why it's, it's chose for clinical studies, folks. It fits into an eight eight hour workday for the physicians. But you personally, what about you personally? Uh, you know, D- DMT is very, very quick. It's a great elevator ride. I, I have enjoyed it in the past, but I don't get the message. Uh, maybe I'm dumb. Maybe I need to have a longer exposure. But in four to six hours, I can process a lot. In 15 minutes to 20 minutes, I mean, I'm holding on to my chair <laughs> and going into into cyberspace, you know, at a high acceleration, it's wonderful. And you get into the spaciousness and dissociative destruction of the ego. But I, I don't get the time that I need to to love myself. And this is ultimately, I think the core of humanity is based on goodness. And I think psilocybin removes all these layers that complicate self-love and understanding. And if you can love yourself, then you can love others. And I think that's the root of violence, the root of depression, is people not realizing that if you can come to terms to love yourself, then um, you can love others because you know who you are. And the same thing, though, could be said of mescaline or ayahuasca, though, right? Yeah, I have not done ayahuasca from the experiences that I've been told. Uh, yes. The thing about psilocybin mushrooms that's so cool is that it's really not cultural appropriation. 116 species of psilocybin mushrooms are known around the world. They were used in Europe, in Ireland, in South America, in North America. They were used all over the world. It's not like peyote, which I actually am very protective of the peyote hunt and the peyote people, and that is an endangered species that shouldn't be made available, in my opinion, to the masses, because it is threatened and it is cultural appropriation because the peyote hunt is so specific to the peoples that that use them. On the other hand, psilocybin mushrooms, like this one professor, who I won't mention her name, but she was very, very adamant that this is cultural appropriation where it's stealing from the Mazatecs. And I said, you know, I, I know many people who've studied with the Mazatecs, and, and I've been in correspondence with some of the, the Mazatec uh, people as well. They don't use Slosabi Comensis. They use Slosabi Zapatacorum. So there's no cultural appropriation in using Slosabi Cubensis when uh, the Mazatecs have a history of disdaining Slosabi Cubensis. They don't want to use it. They use Slosabi Zapatacorum, which is indigenous to their ecosystem. So it's a real different thing. And 
And this is why when people realize that people all over the world have been using psilocybin mushrooms, and the fact that Eleusinian Mysteries went from 1500 BCE to 500 AD, 2000 years of use in Greek culture of a psychoactive substance, there is deep roots in Europe in the use of psychoactive fungi for spiritual purposes. So the ubiquity of the common experience of psilocybin brings cultures all together. Of course, the Mazatecs have unique knowledge. Of course, the ancient Greeks had unique knowledge. We all have unique cultural perspectives, but we can contribute to the greater good by bringing our knowledge and our experiences together while at the same time protecting indigenous knowledge. Well, Paul, I mean, this is a fascinating and wide-ranging discussion. Listen, I think it's incredible, obviously, what you're doing. For our listeners, watch the documentary, Fantastic Fungi, on Netflix, where Paul really features in that. And there's other documentaries about him as well, or his website is paulstamis.com, or follow him on Facebook or Twitter, or all these other sorts of things. But Paul, you know, I, I just think what you're, you're really a, a revolutionary force in the world, and a revolutionary force for good. So thank you so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Well, thank you so much. And it's really, it's not what we make in this lifetime. It's a legacy that we leave. It's important for all of us psychonauts to create new doors that the next generation can walk through. We need to pass off these keys to these new doors of knowledge. And that's one thing that I've come to greatly appreciate and respect is my destiny is to help others make greater discoveries than that which I've made myself. Mm-hmm. So we're all part we're all part of this one giant consciousness. <laughs> well, thank you very very much. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Hanifa Niall Washington, the co-founder of the Fireside Project, a psychedelic peer support line. And we'll also be talking about the issue of Black people and psychedelics. We feel as we move into this next psychedelic space in history here, as we legalize and decriminalize, we have to have risk reduction and support without risk reduction the decrim movement and legalization, it's maybe taking a step backward or moving itself into risky spaces. And so we also want to help support people understand that, you know, psychedelic use is happening. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. 
I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.